please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. We come this morning to the 22nd sermon in the series we've been working through this year in this little epistle in the back of your Bibles, the epistle that Peter wrote, his first letter. And we're coming to the end of the letter. And as we begin this morning, speaking of uh, a movie that has recently come out, after helping to build the first atomic bomb and witnessing the world's first nuclear explosion, J. Robert Oppenheimer's response was to quote from Hindu scripture. And he said, now I am become death the destroyer of worlds. So it's not his science, or his scientific genius, if you will, but his apocalyptic concerns that become the subject of the new movie out at bearing his name, Oppenheimer, by Christopher Nolan. Apocalyptic legacy brings to thought the idea of the end of the world, and concern for the end of the world hasn't gone away now that we've set off the bomb. It's evolved. Today, we're not so much worried about the nuclear bomb, although Russia and Ukraine keep bringing that kind of into the peripheral of our concerns, as well as North Korea and Iran. These, these things sort of bubble up in the news feed. But the new bomb that's going to destroy civilization is artificial intelligence, apparently, or AI. In fact, last week, an article in the British news agency Guardian observed a parallel between Oppenheimer and Oppenheimer's concern about being a destroyer of worlds and AI. The Guardian noted that earlier this year, signatories of a letter calling for a six-month pause in AI development by some of the very men who developed AI. <laughs> Just like Oppenheimer, after he set off the first nuclear bomb, worked the rest of his life to try to end it in some way or another. Well, there's no question that the world is changing. Many think it's changing for the worse. There are days I'm convinced it's changing for the worse. What does a Christian do on the doorstep of the end of the world? The text we have before us this morning is taken from 1 Peter. It's a little like a, a manual or a survival guide for the end of the world. And in particular, we have in the section of 1 Peter this morning, in the first few verses of chapter 5, specific instructions on how not just to survive, but to thrive at the end of the world. And that's my title this morning, How to Survive the End of the World. And it's continuing the series that we've been in in First Peter, but it also serves as a, as a kind of a tidy wrap-up for a short series we've been doing this summer on the importance of eldership in the local church. As it turns out, the local church elder, sometimes known as a ruling elder, is a crucial component 
for your survival and thriving at the end of the world. Since the elder, specifically, and then the church he serves generally, is so important, Peter pauses his discussion about the crisis that's facing the church to highlight specifically some guidelines on how the church should be organized and the crucial role that the church should play in difficult and dark days. Our text, as I see it, gives instruction to the elders, instructions to the church at the end of the world. And then it reminds us of the source of our strength, which will be my points this morning. So let's give our attention then to the reading of God's word as we think about surviving the end of the world. This is God's eternal word, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will likewise receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So far the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we have sung asking you to speak, and so in prayer now, I pray that you would speak that the words of my mouth and the meditations, reflections, and even the questions on each one of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If this is the end of the world, what do we do? How do we not only survive but thrive? Instructions to the elders are first given. First, a warning. A warning. The first word on our text is a little word. And recently listening to a sermon by John Piper, I'm reminded that little words matter in the Bible. So if you have your copy of the Bible, you should circle the first word in our text the word so. It's a linking word which helps you as a reader to understand that what he's saying is a change of subject, but it links to the thing that came before it. Let's take a peek. Starting at verse 16 of chapter 4. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, 
I exhort the elders. Apparently, the warning which is given in verses 16 to the end of chapter 4 has not only application to the church in general, which it does, but a special application to elders. And the warning to elders is, it is time for judgment to begin, and let it begin at the house of God. So we're addressing the household of God, which has been a theme of Peter. Peter returns to it, and Peter, in addressing the house, turns to the head of the house, the leaders in the house, the fathers in the house, which is what an elder is. He's a spiritual father in the household of faith. And so the judgment that is warned in 1 Peter 4.17, while it has application to the whole congregation, has a special concentrated warning to the shepherds of the flock. So having warned the elders that it is time for judgment to begin with us, he then proceeds to give them guidance. According to commentator Karen Job, and I think she's right, the phrase household of God must be read in light of the shift of the focus to the local church elder because they are the leaders in the local church. But the instruction to the elders doesn't end with the warning. The instruction to the elders continues then with an encouragement. Look at verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you. The word exhort could also be translated encourage. There's a, there's a beautiful breadth to this word. It's, it's all over the New Testament. It could also be uh, included in the meaning here. It could be the idea of an invitation. I invite, I encourage, I exhort, I appeal. So encouragement is explicit with the use of this word exhort. But look at the encouraging way he begins his encouragement. What does Peter say by way of encouragement? First, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. A three-phrase autobiography of the Apostle Peter. His encouragement is to tell them something about himself. This, in fact, is the most information we have about Peter in the entire letter of 1 Peter. It's actually a treasure trove of information, biblically speaking. And though an average Bible reader might pass over this phrase fairly quickly and maybe register one or two questions, it's crucial for understanding our passage. Because in referring to himself the way that he does, He's encouraging the elders. Having warned them, he's encouraging them. What does he say? He says, I'm a fellow elder. How is that encouraging? The great apostle Peter? The first among equals? The leader of the twelve? The one who walked on water? 
one of the three who went to the mountain, that Peter, the Apostle Peter, first of the twelve, he could have said any of these things and he would have been right and he would not have been bragging. He says, I am a fellow elder. I think this is encouraging solidarity. I am with you. I'm one of you. I'm not better than you. I am not over you. I'm not smarter than you. I'm not any less of a sinner than you are. Please don't pray to me. Well, that's not in there, but it's implied. He does not have more rank or status when it comes to this matter of leading in the church, he is simply an elder. He's not aloof from them. He's familiar with their challenges. He's not, you know, um, the preaching pastor. The high and mighty. While the, the shepherding pastors, they're the ones that get their hands dirty. This is the sleeves rolled up Peter, up to his elbows in the problems and difficulties and the nitty-gritty of the flock, Peter, a fellow elder. He's down in the trenches, not in the academy. He's not just giving theory here. He feels the heat of conflict, of opposition, of rejection. So when he says it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, as a fellow elder, he's letting them know by way of encouragement, I know how that feels. I feel it too. But he also gives an example, which is encouraging. Verse 1 says he's not only a fellow elder, but he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. What does this phrase mean? Let's review our Bible knowledge here. Did Peter witness the sufferings of Christ? Hmm. Well, he witnessed the arrest, and from a distance he saw some of the Inquisition, a.k.a. interview with Jesus after the arrest. So, he certainly saw Jesus being mocked and persecuted and rejected by the religious leaders. So broadly speaking, he witnessed the sufferings of Christ firsthand. But where was he when things got really tough? What did he do? Not once. Not twice. But three times. And in fact, when the sufferings of Christ came up in the ordinary course of Jesus' ministry, and Jesus says, you all know that I need to go to Jerusalem and suffer, don't you? Peter did not witness to the sufferings of Christ. Peter denied and refused and rebuked Jesus for even raising the possibility of the sufferings of Christ. No, Peter became a witness to the sufferings of Christ after the resurrection, in my opinion. See, Peter had to learn 
like all good leaders have to learn, and elders in particular, how to witness to the sufferings of Christ. He had to learn. I think it's the kind of thing that all elders are called to do, which is important in a Presbyterian church where we call them ruling elders, and so the very term attached to the name elder could suggest a kind of limit to the role of an elder to that of governance. And Peter is saying to his fellow elders that he is a witness to the sufferings of Christ, and so should they be. This is an encouragement. If you need a few more textual hooks to hang this conviction on, 1 Peter 4.16 says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or an evildoer or even as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in the name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Elders are to be known, above all else, as Christians, Christ's man. And therefore, their life and their words are to be a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Their lifestyle should show the sufferings of Christ. Their career choices should indicate the sufferings of Christ. The topics of conversation ought to, ought to be bathed in the blood of Christ. And their prayers should cling to the suffering Christ as they intercede on behalf of the sheep under their care. How appropriate it is that the one who was so fearful and refused to witness the sufferings of Christ since he ran away and denied the Lord later went on to repent and become a mighty witness and preacher of the sufferings of Christ. So he is encouraging them by his example, isn't he? The third encouragement is consolation. It's a comfort. He's not only a fellow elder, he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ, but he is a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. The word partaker could, could say partner, or you could call it communing with, sharer. He's sharing presently in the glory that is to be revealed. This is of great consolation to an elder. You see, it's tempting to think at the end of the world that things are all bad. And Peter, by saying that he's a partaker or one who has communion or sharing in the glory that is to be revealed, pleasant tense, that future glory, the transformation of all reality for which every Christian prays for and waits, that transformation is already at work in Peter's heart and life even now. And so Peter in this phrase is giving voice to what John says, that we have, present tense, we have eternal life. We're not just waiting grinning, gritting, clenching our fists for, for the moment to come when we can leave this evil world and be translated into glory and leave it all behind. Oh no, we are, we are even now celebrating 
and tasting, present tense, and seeing, present tense, that the Lord is good here and now today. I am a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Now, it is nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed. No eye has seen or ear has heard about that glory. And John, when he tries to describe it, resorts to the most common metaphors like streets of gold. But he's an active, current participant. And this is great comfort to an elder. So Peter's encouragement at the end of the world to the elders in the church is not only just a point to himself, to point to Christ. Even in this phrase, this, this comforting phrase, a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, Peter is witnessing to Christ. He's witnessing to the elders. He's preaching the gospel to men who preach the gospel. He's shepherding the shepherds and leading them to the waters of eternal life when he says, I am a partaker of the glory that will very soon be revealed. And then his instructions to the elders continue, and I'm going to be very brief on this section, with some specifics. Shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. Quick point, the word shepherd can mean feed. Because shepherd's primary job is to feed the sheep. Oversight can mean protect. Look out over. Look for the wolves. So in these two words, we have the combination double duty of a shepherd of the sheep, which is to feed and protect. And they're used in, in, in synonyms, or they're parallel. Shepherd, that is, oversee. So oversight defines feeding. So Feed them in such a way as to protect them. Protect them in such a way as that they can be fed. And then we have three things that we shouldn't do as elders and three things that we should. Not under compulsion, but willingly. I had a whole sermon on this one phrase, by the way. Elders are to do their work willingly. They shouldn't have to be badgered or arm-twisted, brow-beaten. An elder has a willing heart. This is the place where we talk about free will in Scripture. Elders need to choose to do the work. In fact, it's something that an elder should, it's something a man should aspire to. It's, It's willing because you shouldn't have to be told to do the work. It ought to be something that you have chosen to do, even from a young age, and that you prepare to do over the years so that when the time comes and it's, it's your hour to serve, you're ready and willing. And he says, as God would have you. So the willingness is a way of, of living your life as a man in a way that imitates God and God is willing in what he does God plans he's a planner he's a preparer he's a he's a doer he stores up for the rainy day and then provides he's a provider 
He's a protector and a defender, and he's skilled at it. So the willingness needs to be, it needs to mirror the very heart of God, but it, but it also suggests, as God would have you, your willingness is, is a willingness in the sphere in which you've been called. Shepherd the flock of God. So God is mentioned twice in our text. Shepherd the flock of God willingly as God would have you. It's his flock. Be willing. Be, be ready. Be prepared because it's his flock. Your willingness isn't just like for your stuff or your plans. Your willingness is in deference to and respect to the fact that it's God's stuff and God's plans. And then it says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So shameful gain speaks to financial remuneration. And early on in the church, church's life, it became the practice to, to give elders financial compensation for their time. The idea is that a hardworking man in the prime of his working life could be working in the marketplace, earning an income, or he could be relieved of those worldly cares and be given the freedom by being given an income, partial or full income, in order to devote his entire attention to these matters of the flock of God. In fact, it, we know it's a practice of the church because one of the major debates in Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote, he wrote two letters to the Corinthians, was about whether or not Paul should, should employ that freedom to be paid for his work as an apostle, as an elder. But along with that practice came some abuses to the practice. And some elders were, were taking money wrongfully, either taking money that wasn't theirs or taking money and not doing the work that they were set aside to do. And so shameful gain refers to that stealing, thieving practice of essentially fleecing the sheep of their hard-earned money in order to say you're doing the work of an elder when in fact you're not. You're just feathering your own nest. Someone who would elder or shepherd or oversee a flock or a group of flocks without being responsible to the sheep and to the God of the sheep is a thief and a false shepherd. Ezekiel 34 is a brilliant and extremely poignant picture of such false shepherds as is John chapter 10. So that's what they are not to do. But they are to be eager. And the word for eager suggests passionate. So this builds on the willingness of the first criteria. You're not just to be willing, men. You are to be passionate about your work. You are to be driven to this work. You are to be compelled to this work. Paul said, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And so Peter is instructing the elders at the end of the world to be not only willing, but passionate. And if you're passionate for money, you cannot be passionate for God. They are, they are incompatible. And my mentor, my pastor, in his previous life was a custodian. 
and he kept a vacuum cleaner in his office as his symbol to remind himself and the congregation that if they ever stopped paying him, his call would not cease. He's passionate for the gospel. And God give us men that are as well. Third, verse 3, not domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Again, and a whole sermon could be crafted from this challenge. And this is the verse I wanted to skip. Because in my willingness and in my passion for the eldership and for the pastorate, I have more than once, in fact, at times habitually domineered over people. Because, you know, I have some really good ideas. And it's really God's gift to you. I am God's gift to you. Don't you know this about me? I am so helpful. In fact, I have answers to questions you're not even asking. So helpful. And I can correct with the best of them. I can spot a flaw a mile away. And I can make sure you're on the right path. I know the mind of God and I know what He's doing in your life. And I'm so busy with your life, I have forgotten mine. And Peter says to the elders by way of instruction at the end of the world, the way you lead in the church is not by domineering over the flock, but by setting an example for the flock. See, Peter here is giving more credit to the sheep than the elders sometimes give, or I do. They watch. They know. They're God's sheep after all. He bought them with his blood. He set them apart for himself. He's called them sons and daughters of the king. They have a relationship with God apart from the elder. They can go directly to God. We've done away with that mediator. And so set an example for them. Even as these youth have set an example for me today. And his last instruction is actually a, a motivation. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. See how I said that? Unfading crown of glory. It just, it's words that, that deserve more than just prose. These are, these are poetry. The unfading crown of glory. A crown that never dims. It shines for eternity. And so elders aren't just saved. There's a reward promised to the faithful shepherd of the sheep who under the chief shepherd, the, the true senior pastor, as some have said, the associate pastor under the senior pastor Christ, in addition to salvation, there is a reward promised to that one who is willing and passionate and sets an example for the flock. This isn't a time to get into 
whether rewards are biblical, but they are. They're biblical, and God is pleased to crown His graces with further grace. The rewards aren't meritorious per se because He only rewards the the gifts that He gave. But a faithful use of those gifts in the discharge of the office of pastor or elder, He is pleased to give an unfading crown of glory. Instructions to the church. At the end of the world, we need a survival guide, and we're given instructions as elders. We're also given instructions as a church. And the church's instructions is shorter. It's compacted all in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, I like the plural S there because I am Presbyterian. I'm a Christian. That's my most important thing you need to know about me. And, but I serve in a Presbyterian denomination, and we believe in something called the plurality of elders. That means it's not just one or two guys making a, ch- a decision here. We have a group of men who often disagree, and we hammer it out in prayer and dialogue in the Scriptures. And he's calling you who are younger. So what does this mean? Well, elder literally means old man. An elder need not be an old man. There isn't any age limitation in the Scriptures like there is like for the United States presidency. But an elder needs to have the wisdom of the ages. The wisdom of the aged. He needs to be a man in whom wisdom has been seasoned. So you who are younger are you who are less seasoned in your understanding of or application of the teaching of the Bible. Your experience of God's transforming grace. And your walk with the Lord. You who are younger also refers to all who are not elders because the office of elder is an office of authority. And so even if you're older, wiser, and more experienced in the Lord, if you're not an elder, you are one of those who are younger because an elder holds an office that is superior to you. You're not less than as a person, but the Bible believes in this sort of, if I may say it, a hierarchy. There is, there is a differentiation of authority in Scripture. Now, this is hard if you're older, and yet Peter calls you younger. And in my first pastorate, I was pretty much the youngest person in the church. And those poor guys, all of whom at that time were in their 60s and 70s, had to listen to a 29-year-old preacher Now, it's hard for you, I realize, but it was very hard for them. But the fifth commandment calls us to submit ourselves, not just to those who are more aged than we are, but to those who are more gifted than we are, and to those who have authority by way of office that we do not have. So we submit to a president we don't agree with, 
we submit to laws we didn't vote for, and we submit to elders who are younger than us and perhaps not even as wise as we are. And these are instructions for the church at the end of the world. Peter, in, in his wisdom, and the Holy Spirit in inspiring Peter, has summoned the church to not abandon the flock where you find your identity and safety, where you're protected from the wolves by elders that aren't as smart as you, they haven't had as much experience as you do, and they don't know as much Bible as you know. And this is the instruction that the church needs at the end of the world. Submission, therefore, is commended, isn't it? You who are younger, submit to the elders. Submit literally means to put yourself under. You need to make a willing choice, just like the elders do. You need to willingly make a decision. I am going to be subject to the elders. Now, there are limits to subjection in church, just like there are in marriage. The scriptures are our guide. And when the elder steps out of the scriptures, you are free to not submit. The problem is, in my experience, many congregation members are very clear when I'm, not, when I'm stepping outside the scriptures, and in fact, I'm not. So please keep that in mind. Have a healthy sense of skepticism on that, or at least make sure that you're in conversation as you come to those kinds of conclusions. Submission is commended. And finally, humility is encouraged. Clothe yourselves, all of you, and now I think he's throwing a blanket over everyone, elders and congregation, both. All of you, elders and church, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I wonder if perhaps why the church struggles is because he is opposing the church elders included, because we're proud. You may be experiencing friction in your life at the moment. By friction, I mean you're not getting the gas mileage out of your life that you should. You're constantly filling up the tank. There's smoke coming out the back tailpipe. What's going on? And the friction in the engine is that God is opposing you, perhaps, and he's calling on you to humble yourself to clothe yourself with humility. Nice outfit. Thanks. Thank you. Humility. Friction in the church or friction in the Christian life sometimes comes from the opposition of God. Think about Jonah. He experienced friction when he ran in the opposite direction. Now there's a false positive here too because sometimes when you run from God, all of a sudden you... You feel an immediate relief or an alleviation of friction. Life is easier when you don't have to go to church on Sunday. Life is easier if you don't have to follow certain moral standards of the Ten Commandments in your personal or professional life. Life is easier when you don't have to hang out with your friends and talk about Jesus or witness Christ in non-Christian circles. You might find yourself accelerating up the corporate ladder. So don't be fooled by false positives. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So we get the strength to do all these things. If this is an end-of-the-world survival guide, 
and Peter's telling you how to survive the end of the world, are batteries included? The answer is yes. Because we survive the end of the world by our union with Christ. Those batteries can't be, be purchased at Ace or on Amazon. They come by faith in the risen Christ. It's, it's, the, it's the being a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed in verse, verse 1 of chapter 5. A partaker of Christ is someone who's tasted Christ, who's seen Christ on the cross as he's, as he's described in the Gospels and said, that man died for me. His destiny is mine. When he died, I died. When he rose, I am alive forevermore. And that's the power to carry out the instructions at the end of the world, both to the church and to her elders. Now, in conclusion, turns out Wikipedia has a, has a page listing predictions of the end of the world. You may remember Harold Camping famously predicted the end of the world on May 21st, 2011, which he later revised, by the way. Now, Wikipedia is slightly biased. I know it's crowdsourced, but it leans for sure. But I was pleased in this particular entry, a number of scientific apocalypses were included. False predictions by scientists, overpopulation, end of the world, it didn't happen. I'm not saying population isn't something to be at least discussed. Climate change, end of the world. Natural disasters, end of the world. Well, I like the acronym. Regardless of what the end of the world is, Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. You heard that one before? It's kind of silly, but it works. Basic instructions before leaving earth. I thought about an acronym for church since this is a message to the church. Crucial help under really complicated happenings. Not so good, I know, but I get an A for effort. Actually, with compliments to REM, the end of the world has already happened. When Jesus died on the cross, he broke the neck of the devil. When he rose from the grave, he triumphed over the world, the flesh, and hell. And he reigns victorious in the new world, which by faith you are partaking of already. So all this talk about the end of the world is a little overblown. We're already there. This is, this is the mop-up where we're trying to get people to join the party before it's too late. And so we as Christians should not walk around, although the world, I believe, is getting bad and worse. We have much to be hopeful for because the church is on the move with faithful shepherds who are witnessing to the sufferings of Christ and bringing in little lambs who had gone astray and a church who knows her Savior, who knows the chief shepherd, holding those elders accountable and submitting to their lawful biblical counsels. The church is thriving in a difficult age at the end of the world. And this church, though we have lots of room to grow, 
We are doing very well by the grace of God, and I am proud to be your pastor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to not just survive the end of the world, but to thrive. Remind us who our Savior is and where he is. He is not hanging on that cross, and he is certainly not in the grave. But he is a living, reigning Lord who lives to intercede for us and sits upon a throne of grace, which we are welcome at any moment of the day to find relief from our mental and emotional and spiritual burdens and to be empowered to the call which you have put on all of our lives. And some of us, we are called to be elders. Help us, oh shepherd, shepherd us. to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.